Well, good morning, church. How are y'all? I'm sitting down while you're sitting down. This is a weird feeling. Hey, uh, if this is uh, your first time with us, you're a guest of ours, uh, welcome to Piedmont. My name's Chris. I'm the, the pastor here, and uh, we don't normally sit on couches up here necessarily. Uh, this Sunday's a little different. Uh, for the next couple of weeks, we are in a series called Christianity's Biggest Questions, and really, um, over the past several months, I, I've been kind of praying about how we can continue to equip the church, equip uh, e- each of us to have difficult conversations. It's a part of our uh, you know, mission here to, to love God and love people, and how can we love people if we can't engage with them in difficult topics? I don't know that we can. And so uh, what we wanted to do this month is ask some tough questions, and I wanted to have some church members up here with me to kind of uh, discuss these. So this morning I have Tyler Warnock. Everybody say, hey, Tyler. This is my gorgeous wife, Amy Barb. Everybody say, hey, gorgeous wife, Amy Barb. You don't have to say that. You can say, hey, Amy. And uh, this is one of our elders, James Douthat. Y'all can all say, hey, Jimmy. Right? (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, Anyway, um, so basically, over the next couple of weeks, we are going to just have a discussion. And I prompted them, so this isn't just, uh, you know, I, I just throw some tough questions. I don't kind of stump the, the Piedmont church members, so to speak. Although, we will definitely, I, it will be a discussion, so not all of this is completely choreographed and scripted. And so give us some grace in that as well. But today, we are going to be basically looking at the idea of hypocrisy. I believe that if you've had any conversation with non-believers, one of the topics of interest that will come up with them is hypocrisy inside the church, how the church can oftentimes um, have this air of perfection about them, but what, what the reality is is that we're not perfect. So how do we wrestle with these difficult times where the church is to be called and to be set apart and to be different, but yet in many ways the church stumbles and falls. And so our first kind of question that I want to ask you guys um, this morning is why do, uh, let me like, let me preface this, act as if I'm the agnostic, the atheist, even maybe, you know, someone else of a, a different religious group. And I come to you and we're sitting over a coffee table, and I'm across the table from you, and I go, you know, why do Christians think they're better than everyone else? Why do Christians really feel that? So, don't all fight to jump once, but somebody's got to jump first. I'll say, first of all, I don't think that every Christian thinks they're better than everyone else. So, I'm already putting a hole in your argument here. Yeah, um, there it is. No, I think, though, that... It's a hard, that's a very hard question because if you look at all the commandments in the Bible, start with the Ten Commandments, which is a a pretty exhaustive list of how we're supposed to live. And if you follow those commandments, then you should result in a better life than someone who doesn't. But that doesn't make you a better person like I think we were all born on equal footing. We were afflicted with the same sin nature. So we start at this base level where we're all the same. And 
those that turn to Christ in their life, um, I think there is an expectation that they are supposed to live a better life, but I don't know that they're a better person. And some are more successful than others, Amen. for sure. Um, and most of us aren't very successful at all. Yeah. But, and that's where the hypocrisy argument jumps in. So that's enough about what I have to say. So, y'all got anything to add to that? Yeah, I would just say that any Christian who like publicly claims to be better than anyone around him is not—that's not a Christian belief. And so, it—we can't really—we can't judge if someone is behaving in a way that contradicts, so Christianity. That's not the fault of Christianity. That's mm. just them. It, it really doesn't make any sense to criticize Christianity because someone is doing something in the name, like even though they're associated to that group, they're directly contradicting Christianity. And so I don't think that's a fair judgment on Christianity. Yeah. Before Amy goes in, I do want to give one example of where Jesus spoke of a parable of the Pharisee. Scripture, do it. I didn't write down the scripture reference. I'm sorry, everybody. (laughs) Just look it up on your own. But there was a Pharisee that was praying in the temple, and he was very lofty about his prayers, and he basically stood in front of everyone and said, thank you, God, that I'm not like the tax collector, that dirty sinner in the back. <laughs> I believe it's in the Gospel of Matthew, and it might be chapter 14. Don't hold me to that. See, So um, just look it up, though. And then the, the poor tax collector probably overheard all that, but when he came forward, his prayer was much more genuine and humble, and he said, you know, please forgive me, God. I am a sinner. And, you know, look at the difference between the two. And so I think Jesus later mentioned something about who was actually heard and who was not heard, you know, in that in that story. So Yeah, there's different points. We're talking about casting the first stone and, you know, something in your eye and right. my eye. I don't, you know, I don't remember all the words. <laughs> right. Amy, do you got anything added to that first one? Um, I mean, not necessarily. I think that they both gave really great answers. Um, I agree. Um, but I will say, I think... I think where the miscommunication comes in between those of us who are in Christ and those of us who are outside of Christ, maybe looking at our lives, is our pursuit of righteousness. You know, I think that's a word that people think is arrogant and it has connotations. And there's almost like this aspect outside the church that holiness is a cuss word. Mm. And so I think that those of us who are in Christ and as we're pursuing Christ and Christ's righteousness and we're trying to be set apart and we look different, all they know how to do is look at us and mock us and say, well, they're just arrogant. They think they're better than us. But I think like Tyler said, you know, they're not going to understand that. And if people are, you know, claiming to that, that we are better than you, then they're missing the point of Christianity and you can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater to use your favorite phrase. All right, so I'm going to take a a little bit of a turn. What responsibility should the church feel, like people who are truly in Christ, should we feel any more responsibility, or should we just not at all, about those who would profess faith in Christ, but maybe live in that manner that I, I am holier than thou? Or should we just, you know, ignore them, you know, throw them out with the the lot, you know, say, eh, hey, atheists, those people who say that, you know, they're crazy, don't worry about it. Or should we somehow, what, like, what can we do in that situation? Is there anything? If I understand your question, I think my answer would be that we're supposed to rebuke people who are doing that if we see that. Um, like, 
I don't have the scripture reference, but um, when Paul goes to Peter and says, hey, you're being a hypocrite because when Jews weren't around, you were perfectly comfortable with the, with the Gentiles and you were eating with them. But then when these Jewish leaders came, you decided that you couldn't be seen with these Gentiles anymore. So Paul rebuked them um, like we looked at in our Bible study on Wednesday night. I think it was uh, Galatians 6. Yes, Galatians 6. Um, we're told that we have to rebuke other Christians for their transgressions. We are told that we have to call each other out. We have to hold each other accountable. And I think the point of that is to prevent Christianity and Christians and ultimately Christ having a bad name in the world. Yeah, the Peter and Paul thing is also in Galatians. I think it's chapter 2 or 3. Cool. Uh, so. All right, so let, let's let's kind of anybody want to add on that? Well, I was going to say that after church, we're going to have a rebuke line here. So <laughs> it's a couple people in the church that are real good at it. So line up. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this gets this this first question kind of gets us to another place. If Christians really love Jesus, I think if if you had, uh, again, an atheist friend or, or something like that, it, it, and they, they may look at you and say, well, if Christians really love Jesus, and you're really in this search for holiness, and like James said, you have the Ten Commandments, so you have this way of living your life, why is there so much hurt in the church? Why, why, why is there, at some points, very little difference in the way a Christian lives their life and the way a non-Christian lives their life. And I'll give a few examples. I know we have little ears in the room, so I won't go into too, too, too much detail. But statistically, a man outside of the church looks at images about 85 to 90 percent, right, of men in the last three months have looked at images. And y'all can understand what I'm saying. Inside the church, that statistic doesn't change much. So an atheist would look at that and go, wow, inside the church, there are men who are looking at images they shouldn't, and then outside the church, that about same number, and I think this, this uh, statistic came from Pew Forum, they did a, a survey on this, are looking at the same amount. And so you look at that issue, you look at the issue of abuse, and there's still high levels inside the church, there's high levels outside the church. There, there's a lot of sins, to use the church word, that are still happening inside of not necessarily the, the church walls, the literal four walls, but within the church body at the same rate that they're happening outside of the church. So if, if you people really believe in love, how can, how can you hold that view? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you rectify that or reconcile that, I should say? Well, I'll jump in, let y'all think. So Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned come short of the glory of God, and that doesn't change just because you now go to church. So the same sins that plague society are also prevalent in the church, and the same struggles, and I think sometimes people realize they may have a problem, and they come to church thinking that that's going to fix them, but ultimately that's not the remedy is to fix this one area of their life or this one sin or this one problem they have. The, the purpose of coming to church is to find and build a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so when you do that, then that's when your struggles become easier to manage. But I think that fundamentally 
people are drawn to something that's going to fix. It's like going to the doctor. And I, I want this, you know, I want to get this uh, sinus infection fixed, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sick all over, but we're just going to address this right now. And I think going to church, you have to humbly realize that at some point, um, it's not just one area in your life. It's, it's your whole focus in life and that, that you should, you need to fix it all. And, and you're not going to be cured like overnight. And you may not ever be. I mean, I think Paul said he struggled with things, you know, throughout his life. So why shouldn't we expect the same? So that's kind of my thing is when people are asking, you know, I think the outside people that don't go to church, I think they look at churchgoers as, hey, they're the people that have it together and they they look at us like we don't, and that's not necessarily the case. Um, I think the picture that's drawn in society of what church people are like is uh, is inaccurate. I was just wanting to listen on this one. I hear you. <laughs> um, I think the other aspect that we have to address, um, in addition to we're still sinners inside the church, is that there's spiritual warfare, and yeah. unfortunately, as long as we're this side of heaven, there will be suffering, and scripture says that the enemy prowls around looking for people to devour, and so those of us who are in Christ come under attack, and because we are fallen, because we are sinners, because we are imperfect, we fall sometimes, and as much as, you know, many of those examples you mentioned break my heart, they're just going to be present this side of heaven, unfortunately, until we are fully restored. Yeah. Uh, I think there's also something getting to your sinus infection thing when we go to church to fix the, fix the sinus infection. I think there has come a point in, in church history and in Christian theology at times where we haven't always communicated clearly what sin has done. It hasn't made us sick. Sin made us dead. Like we were dead. So there's no fixing that symptom. Most of us, when we go to the doctor with a sinus infection, we really just want the symptoms to go away. We don't necessarily care about the infection. We, I mean, we do, but really, if you get the symptoms to go away, we can just go out on the life. When I think, when we look at sin, the symptom is that you're dead, period. And what we need to remember is that just because you try to clean up a corpse doesn't make it any less dead. It's still dead. And so the only fix is to go to Jesus, and then he gives you life, and even further, once he gives us this life, and scripture says that we're a new creation in Christ, <clears throat> I can remember when I gave my life to Jesus when I was 19 years old, thinking, wow, everything is going to be perfect. And then I got back to reality really quickly to go, yeah, I'm still dumb. Like, I still make <laughs> bad mistakes. Like, I still do things that I don't want to do, and the things that I do want to do, in Paul's words, I don't do. And so there's this constant battle of flesh and new spirit inside of me. So I think it's important for us to remember that and to speak that over each other. So to get back to this idea of loving the church well, Amy and I brought up something. I'm going to throw another curveball at you guys. Uh, if, you, if you knew I was going to throw so many curveballs, would you have still said yes when I asked you weeks ago to do this? Uh, so I, we, I asked Amy, so she has a little bit of a lead on this one, so I'm going to give you the first opportunity. Um, we, we look at 
pain and hurt and trouble inside the church, and I have a, a hypothesis, or I'm going to form it in the way of a question. The, the basic question is why do you think we've gotten, do you, or do you think we've gotten to a place where there's more pain, more hurt in the church in 2020 than there was, let's say, 1,500 years ago? If your answer is yes, no, maybe, whatever, why do you think we've gotten there? Okay, I'll continue. Hold on. <laughs> you did not <laughs> well, I asked you, okay, I what I said to Amy was, do you believe that the seeker-friendly church model, the uh, model in many ways that we, to a certain degree, I would say, hold, like, I mean, we have cool LED lights, and we make sure that your coffee and water is good, and we create an environment for anyone of all walks of life to be able to walk into these doors and, and worship with us. Like, we, we try to create a, an environment for anyone, no matter where you are in the journey, you may hate Jesus. You may have been in love with Jesus for your, you know, 35 years of your life, whatever. We try to create an environment where anyone can walk in the doors and hear the good news of the gospel. Now, some could make the argument that because of that environment creation, that seeker-friendly, that really, uh, I, I will just say seeker-friendly environment, we have ignored some things that are difficult about church, such as Matthew 18 and church discipline. Bringing them down front and spanking them, right, James? Isn't that what you said? Something like that, rebuking them? Do you think, <laughs> do you think that there's an aspect? I mean, think about your years in the church. So you have less than her. You have less than him. Well, well I'm not trying to play on the bus, James. Sorry, you, you're older. So... In those years, how often have you seen church discipline? Like, Scripture speaks of church discipline, but how often do we see it? And because, I'm going to go ahead and answer for you, you haven't seen it very much. And because you haven't seen it very much, does that play into this idea of self-perpetuation and sin inside the church? Is that broken down enough? Well, I don't know that... And you could disagree with that. I know in, said, in church discipline, it usually says that there should be two or three leaders in a church to address something going on with an individual privately, I think, So it, initially. Yes, basically it's one-on-one. -on -one. So, one, one person goes to one, and then when they don't listen, then two go to one. Right, so if I think privately it does happen because there are times that I've had to tell King Kemper to <laughs> straighten up. Yeah, so there he is. There it is. Name so, drop. But I think I this mean, is being recorded. I am kidding though. So here's, but no joke. I do think that we need people in our life that aren't afraid to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Yeah. Especially, I mean, when it is, if it becomes known, it's like, look, this is so damaging that you need to do something now and not go in that direction. You are out of line, and I'm telling you this because I love you. And also, I don't want you to embarrass me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but I think that, that I say that jokingly, but there are people that we need in our life that will tell us that. Yeah. And I think that's the hard part about being a friend is that we're not good at that, at telling people when they're really off track uh, and they need to be told. And it's hard to, because I'm not good at that. But friendship's a two-way street, right? 
Yes. So me and you are friends, but you may not feel like you have the ability to speak into my life for whatever. Maybe I'm, you know, hard-headed. Maybe I've just never been vulnerable with you in that fashion. So there is a two-way street in the sense that we can't just be the people who's always going to. If I always go to Tyler or you and say, hey, you guys really stink at X, Y, Z, but you've never, like, opened the door for me, I'm just kicking the door down. So there's an aspect to the believer that needs to live a life with people around us that we, we have given them the key to our door, like that they can walk in and speak into our life, right? I mean, isn't that an aspect of it? Well, sometimes you have to, if there's a toehold, you're going to have to take it. A toehold? Yes, if they no idea crack means. the door, <laughs> then sometimes you. you need to go ahead and push it open. If somebody's offering, like, wanting you to be a part of their life, then you need to take advantage of that and say, look, this isn't... This isn't just a friendship, man. This is, this is serious. Where you're going to help me move forward in my in my daily life, yeah, in the right direction. And I think, and I want you to do the same for me. And so, I, I think it. If you make it clear up front, then it's a lot easier later if there's an issue. Mm. And that's you know the conversation can start like, hey, man, <laughs> you're not going to like what I'm about to say. <laughs> But I've really been watching you, and here's what I think, and you need to tell me about this, you know? And so that is hard. Amy, you've been itching. I see it. <laughs> I was just going to say that we are not responsible for the other person's reception of what we say. We are, we are responsible for our obedience to the Lord. And the Lord makes it very clear in his word that we are supposed to call out sin in other people's lives. Um, as uncomfortable as that is and as hard as it is, I don't think that we can use, I don't have a place to speak into their life as an excuse because scripture makes it clear that if you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, I have a place. But there's a balance though, right? Absolutely there is. But if I see something and the Lord has laid it on my heart Mm. to say something to you, I have to be obedient to that. Um, And I also, there, you made me lose my thought. Why did you interrupt me? Hey, what stays? Maybe what happens on the stage back. stays on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> right? We're not gonna bring home with us. <laughs> um, oh. My bad. This happens all the time. <laughs> so, say you had someone that you knew that you weren't super close with, but you knew of a sin that they were committing, and you felt compelled to uh, mm. do what you could to help them. Do you not first start with building a relationship? Would that not be the best strategy if the end goal is to actually get them to stop the sin, or do you just skip straight to telling them what's up so in the um, passage I referred to earlier Galatians 6 it says to go to them and address their transgression with gentleness and so I think the way that you apply gentleness would deter or depend on the nature of the relationship that you have with them but what I was going to say earlier and I think answers your question is that we are not responsible for their discomfort when we go to them and say, hey, I see this sin in your life and it's going to destroy you. And so because I love you and I care about you, I need to say something. We need to focus more on the fact that their eternal soul is at stake. And so I think if you frame it that way and you're thinking about eternity and whether or not they are going to come back into the fold and experience life abundantly in Christ, or go to hell, then I think that totally can, if you let it, you know, kind of 
ease some of that when you when you frame it in the sense of eternity yeah it's completely different it makes their temporary discomfort seem like we're talking bigger stakes now exactly yeah i I mean i want to make sure that we're clear just if someone's in christ and and there is a sin in their life that sin is not separating them from christ like i mean in the sense like they are in christ firmly planted forever so when you say that it, it, it has eternal ramifications, really what it has is it has ramifications for their abundant life here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an aspect that it plays to, you know, the, their afterlife and, you know, crowns and their, their are jewels and their crowns. But I think it also plays an aspect to the witness. Mm-hmm. So it's more of an eternal aspect for others as well. Like because mm-hmm. I could have sin in my life, but I am firmly planted in the person and work of Jesus and so I could live that one sin, Lord willing, I wouldn't, but it happens. There's things that you know, certainly do that um, for the rest of my life, but that doesn't separate me from the love of God. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. Can I play devil's advocate yeah. to you? Couldn't you make the argument that if there is a sin that you hold on to and never let go of your entire life, can't you make the argument that maybe you never were really in Christ? What would you say to that? I, I would say I think it really firmly depends on what do you mean by hold on to and, and the levels of sin. I think So when we go to Scripture, there's an aspect that we all think, well, all sins are the same. Well, all sins are the same in the sense that they separate you from Christ. But if you actually dive into the text, like places in 1 Corinthians and others, there are sins in our life that are sins against our body and sins against others. And so those sins are at a higher level and they have a higher devastation path of our life and those around us. And so I think to say that, well, if you just keep doing that sin, then you're not in Christ, I, I personally would not be comfortable saying that. But I don't judge someone else's salvation. That's not my job to do. As a Christ follower, it is my job to inspect fruit. And so if there's a believer who recognizes the sin but still walks in it, like they're, they're struggling, they're repentant of it, but they still just keep following it, that's a very different situation than the believer saying either, A, I disagree that it's not sin, so there's a, there's a doctrinal or theological issue there, or B, I recognize it's sin, I just don't care. That one, I would go, if you recognize it's sin and you just don't care, I would then look at that believer and go, so you do not care that the Lord of all creation has told you not to do this. The guy who gave his son for you died on the cross for that thing, and you don't care. Then maybe you don't care about the Lord himself. Like, I, I think that's a, you know, kind of a say. Again, I'm not saying that they don't. I'm just saying if, if you would look at sin in the face and say, nah, I don't care. Jesus doesn't matter more than sin. Because Jesus is supposed to be the only thing that matters in our life. Like He, he gives us purpose in everything else. Uh, does that make sense? Okay. All right. Um, let's get back on track. All right, so the, uh, the third kind of the question coming off of this idea of hypocrisy uh, gets us to this point of are Christians different than non-Christians? And there's a, a place in Scripture, it's in First Peter, and there's others that talk about this, this idea of being 
set apart. You're a royal priesthood. You're called to be holy. What does that mean for the follower? Like for the, the Jesus follower? What does it mean for us to be set apart? And then how does, what are we set apart from? Can I go, Amy? Y'all don't so, ask Tyler. Just, just dive right in. So I think that um, with the first command to be holy, which is to be separate, growing up I thought holy was, I never knew what it was until I was probably 20 years old. Nobody ever said that it meant separate, and that's all. It just means distinctively different from something else. So in Leviticus, um, God was, I guess, talking to Moses and said, Be holy, for I am holy. And I think that's the first instance in the Bible where it says, For you, people, be holy. And then I think in the rest of Leviticus, it talks about how you can be holy. And there's a ton of rules in there, like don't eat pork, catfish, shrimp, um, you know, those sort of things. And um, so I think that we, the early Jew, Jews adopted that, that rule book, and that's how they became holy. And then in the New Testament, we hear from Paul where he says in, uh, in Romans 12, he says, uh, transform your mind. Don't be of the world. Be different. And so it's not real clear exactly what he's talking about, but I think that we generally know what the world behaves like. It's usually very self-centered. And, and to go with that, we hear later, uh, I'm cheating here, but in Philippians 2, 3, it says, regard others above yourself. So when you, if you look at that, that's definitely not worldly is regarding others above yourself so you you push yourself back in the in the hierarchy of what's important and humble yourself and put others first and and in addition to following the structured life that God outlines in the Bible and I think many people look at it and say hey the 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 Ten Commandments man and and these other rules are so restrictive but I think what they fail to realize is that is this is just like a rule book for a great community if you follow these rules then your life's going to get easier there was a there was a 90s song oh man i forget the name of the band but it was a uh, basic instructions before leaving earth la, 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 la. nobody 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 I know it. thank you appreciate that it was a great <laughs> rendition all of you thank you another band another band come on uh-huh. if you go to spotify and you're like youth group greatest hits it's on there uh a bit. But basic instructions before leaving earth. For those of you that didn't get that, that, that's spelled out Bible in an acronym. Anyway. Oh, okay. So, but anyway, I think that to be different, well, let's back up. If your life isn't different except when you're in front of someone else, mm. then I don't know that you're different. It's like a lifestyle change, not a, like a behavioral change when I go here and there. I behave a certain way in church, school out to eat with my friends. I got five different behaviors that I, you know, I crank the dial out. You know, I get tuned for this, 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 or this. So I think that we're supposed to live a solid, meaningful life that is unwavering and not changing. It's holy and not just sometimes, but we strive for that all the time. Anyway, I may digress here. So 
I actually don't know the answer to this because I don't see any reason that a non-believer couldn't follow, we'll call it Judeo-Christian values, which most of them do. And they would just argue that Christianity has just sort of taken objective values and claimed them as their own. And so they aren't following Judeo-Christian values. They're following the objective moral values of the world. It just so happens that it makes them look nearly identical to a Christian outside of they would probably drop the whole homosexuality being an issue part. And so I actually don't know. Okay. I'll rebuttal that in a minute. No, do it now. <laughs> I'll do it now. So I, I, th- I think for, for someone to try to say that, they c- that you could follow, I think to a certain degree, yes, you're right. People could follow the moral and ethical um, values of Judeo-Christianity. I think the primary difference is a person in Christ has the spirit of the living God giving them the power to do so. And so the, the person outside of Christ would find themselves kind of faking it. It wouldn't be a heart thing. They could perform actions on the outside. And so, whereas the Christian is being changed on the inside, it's this process in Scripture called sanctification. And so, Mm -hmm. our actions as Christians are just the manifestation of the inner spirit moving inside of us. So, it's almost like uh, there's a personality thing out there right now called the Enneagram. So, the difference between the Enneagram and a Myers-Briggs and a Clifton Strengths Finders is that the Enneagram does not talk about what you do expressively on the outside. Mm -hmm. It only talks about your motives. Whereas Meyer Briggs, Clifton Strengths Finders, the red color tests, all those things talk about your actions, the way you do things. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, somebody could come to the scriptures and go, oh, here's how I need to treat people, turn the other cheek, here's how I need to do this, here's how I need to, I don't, you know, adorn myself, whatever. But all of that would be an external thing only. There would not be any heart change because on the insides they would still be completely dead. And they wouldn't have necessarily found themselves any closer to Christ because they can't, no one is righteous except for Christ himself. So then you go to the Christ follower and I'm not necessarily following these rules, laws, commandments of Jesus because I just want to be a better person. Yeah. Now that happens, and I think we all want to be a better person, but I follow them because my Lord and Savior said, hey, do these. And then he has changed me on the inside, and the longer that I do them, the more I thirst for those, the more I thirst to please my Father. And so I think the motives change. So I think there's a, it, it gets tough because there's a lot of, and we're running short on time, so I'll, there's a lot of good people in the world who have had nothing to do with Jesus. But the reality is that's good from our perspective. They still miss the mark. I miss the mark. You miss the mark. Every person in and outside of Christ have missed the mark. And so the, I think the difference comes from the motives and the heart in which we do things. And, and then God's Spirit allows us to push forward and to become like Christ, as it says in Philippians 3. Last, last point to add, Kim Zing? To that? To anything. 
We're wrapping up. We've talked long. J.D. Uh, I'll say one thing to Tyler. I know it's a surprise. <laughs> but I, th I think the difference between a Christian who is adopting the behavior that Jesus exemplified when he was here and the difference between a person that wants to follow his will for their life is the one thing that, that separates a non-believer from a believer is that we are instructed in the Bible in numerous places to meditate on God's word. And usually it's related to some form of prosperity later. Like in Psalm 1, it says, um, you know, stay away from the, the bad people, and me but meditate day and night on my word, and then what you, what's going to happen? You're going to be like a tree. You're going to be strong. You, you're going to be able to handle what life throws at you, and, and so that's the end result. And I think that Christians look at that and say, well, our source of strength comes from God, mm. and it comes from meditating on his word. And, and it says that basically the same thing in Joshua 1. And so if you know the story, it's when the, the um, Israelites had just come out of Egypt. They wandered for 40 years in the, in, in the whatever, Mount Sinai, doing the circle. Anyway, um, so they came into the promised land or, or heading that way, and, and then Joshua delivers this word and says, this is a word from God that if you meditate on my word, then here's how we're going to prosper from it. And I think that, that we do want pros prosperity, and we want to be strong, and I think that the non-believer doesn't realize that. They think that their only strength is from themselves. It's like, I can be stronger if I meditate on some positive you vibes. Know, yeah, if I can surround myself with positive people, positive sounds, you know, that sort of thing. And, and I think that that's where Christians are different, and they're supposed to be different, and I, and I hope they are. But so that I think that's one thing that we, we don't, emphasize a lot in church much is meditating on God's word because it actually is a intentional and focused time that uh, we're easily distracted from. It's mm. a good word, JD. Good. I'm done though. <laughs> Mr. Warnock, anything else? So um, basically throughout this, we hope that what you have heard uh, encourages you, equips you to have conversations, to, to dive in. Maybe you uh, are still questioning some of the things we talked about. Maybe you hated our answers, and that's completely fine. Uh, I can talk with those with you about those later. or Except Amy, right? Yeah, because I interrupt her, and yeah, my bad. I'm sorry. Love it, you. It came back. It came, came back. It was good. I got it. Uh, so, yeah, I can't talk with her on, off stage. Yeah, I get that now. That took like 10 seconds, Chris. My bad. Um, but anyhow, any, anyway, we hope that uh, through this, you as the individual Christ follower will feel a responsibility and a weight to know that you have a special calling on your life, to, to be set apart, to be holy, and don't sweat the small things because you're going to mess up, and I, we can find ourselves as, in a place as Christians where we just wake up every morning going, wow, man, I just stunk it up, this, that, and the other thing. But be refreshed and be anew, renewed that the spirit of the living God lives inside of you. And there is grace and there is power in him.